welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Hello and welcome to this very special celebration episode, episode number 100. If you've been listening for a while, I really appreciate you making this a part of your routine. And if you're new, thanks for checking it out. I've got a great one to get you started. I mentioned last time, if you aren't paying attention to what the team at Chemical and Engineering News is doing in terms of content marketing to scientists, you should be. They're showing us all how it's done. One of the things they've done over the last couple years is to host an event for scientific marketers following the ACS fall meeting. The events are free and really well done. This year, I was invited to moderate a panel discussing earned media and media relations with Amanda Yarnell, the editorial director at Chemical and Engineering News, along with John Kang, senior director of strategy and planning at HDMZ, a life science agency. This episode is a recording of that session. As the recording begins, you'll hear the voice of Andrew Hanley, a partner at RevMade, introducing the panel. So let's jump into it with some special music for the occasion. Excited to introduce uh, the inbound marketing, journalism, and PR experts on earned media best practices in scientific storytelling. So this is really cracking into the relevance formula of what makes a story worth listening to, reading, interacting with, and everything like that. And, and, and on the panel today, we have Chris Connor, who is the host of Life Science Marketing Radio. Great podcast. You should definitely check it out on iTunes, download it, and, uh, and give it a listen. Amanda Yarnell, you probably know as the editorial director of CNEN uh, Magazine, both uh, print and online. And John Kang, who's the senior director of strategy and planning at HDMZ. Take it away, guys. All right. I always wanted to say that. We can clap too. Right? <laughs> Get me out of here. Thanks, Andrew. So uh, just to start, I'd like to have these guys talk a little bit about what they do, because I think that puts a little context around the answers you're going to get from them. So, Amanda, tell us a little bit what you're doing for CEN. Okay. Um, My name is Amanda Yarnell. I work for Chemical and Engineering News, as previously noted. Um, I oversee a team of about 35 reporters and editors um, from Beijing to Berlin, Um, and I also oversee a smaller role, product development at CNEN. Hi, so my name is John Kang. I'm a senior scientific communications specialist at HTMZ. And for those of you that aren't too familiar with us, uh, HTMZ, we're a full-service marketing communications firm that focuses mostly on the life sciences. Uh, so I think that kind of specializes us from everyone else. Um, one way I like to explain what HDMZ is uh, to my friends and colleagues is we're basically just a bunch of nerds and scientists and graphic designers and programmers locked together in a room to solve problems so that people like yourselves can go on to do bigger and better things, right? making the world a better place. right? And just to give you some context of my background, just so you can kind of hear my story, I, I was a scientist by training, uh, got a molecular cellular biology degree at the University of Illinois, and then pursued a master's in medicine in Korea. While I was in Korea, I was working um, mostly under a lot of different labs, and what I kind of learned during that time was, uh, yes, I I grew a much greater appreciation for scientists and what they do at the bench, but I learned I'd much rather be talking about science, uh, 
with people like yourselves and with people like Amanda, uh, rather than actually doing the grunt work. Um, so that's why I'm in media relations, which I love to do and still doing to this day. So, so it may not be obvious, but we have so much in common, <laughs> just on different sides of the line. Yeah, so I have a little in common uh, with them as well. I'm a scientist by training and um, done a couple other things in between. But now I have the fortunate job of producing podcasts to help companies tell their stories externally and internally um, to their audiences. And if you like what you see here, I have the privilege of every other week interviewing a smart marketer like the people you're talking to today and, and get to listen to them because it's much easier to ask other experts than to lab on by myself. That's what I'm going to love about this. Let's start out with the goal. Jonathan, what do we mean by earned media, just so everybody understands, and what's the value of that to an organization? Before I answer that question, I want to preface by saying that uh, I'm, all, everything I'm going to be talking about today is mostly from a media relations perspective, and, and in my humble view, uh, I think it's a little bit more slightly nuanced than um, uh, marketing approaches. I think marketing PR go hand in hand, but there is a little bit of difference there. So uh, having said that, uh, when I think about earned media, I know generally it's not best practice to define a word by using the words, but uh, to me it's, a, it's, it, it's basically uh, media like you know, an article, hits or placements within you know, top tier journals and news, uh, magazines and newspapers uh, that is earned with the caveat of developing a close, meaningful connection and relationships with journalists like Amanda, right? Uh, the reason why I say this is usually a lot of the time when I speak with my clients, we always try to tell them, you know, don't do the pay to play type of model. So just out of curiosity here, how many people have been uh, approached by someone from Ron Rubin or Rob Lowe to, to produce a five to ten minute television piece? No one. Oh, oh you have. Okay, so um, I mean, so I think those types of opportunities, they all definitely all have their place. But if you have $25,000 to blow to create content that appears on some airline channels and on airtime when no one's watching, you know, more power to you. But during that process, when you're just focusing so much on these short-term wins, uh, you kind of lose out on developing good relationships with people like Amanda and her team, which then you lose out on winning those huge payoffs in the end, like you know, a feature article in, say, the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal and things like that. So that's how I would sort of define earned media, and that's something you need to consider if you want to develop a robust media relations strategy. I mean, it's called media relations for a reason. You, you have to develop. It's really critical to develop. Uh, these relationships with the outlets and with editors and with journalists. Yeah, to that I would simply add that I think sometimes there is the earned media opportunity that you are looking for, and then there's the longer play that mm -hmm. you may not be instantly looking for, but by creating that relationship with a journalist, that they're looking for you the next time. And they have a bigger story, perhaps, that you really should be part of, but they don't know that they should be calling you. Maybe that answers the value question, but... Do you want to say anything else about the value of earned media and how it fits into a general marketing strategy? Like, I think there's a lot of trust, mm -hmm. right? Um, because you're, you're buying into the publication's trust with their readers. Um, so I think in that sense, it, uh, it can have a huge amount of influence on your customers. So Amanda, um, what are some of the formats and platforms that are available for communicating science to our customers? I mean, it's very wide and varied. So, so CNN is a, is a niche publication, right? Uh, uh, are all read by scientists, right? Um, some others too, but you know, generally that's the glue that sticks us together. Um, so, but there are lots of others where I would consider 
uh, a legacy publication who's gone digital, but uh, there are lots of other uh, options, right? So you could stratify it by audience, for example. So we're speaking primarily to scientists, but there are all kinds of other media that speak primarily to, obviously, like the public, so mm-hmm. the New York Times or Fortune, something mm-hmm. like that, right? So sometimes you can stratify it on audience. You could also stratify it on type, right? There's your newspaper story. There's your magazine story. These are sort of legacy print products. But I think increasingly, um, you know, what our readers are, uh, are flocking to for sure is, uh, is, is digital formats. And in digital, there are lots and lots of options, right? It could be just magazine, sorry, media website, for example, but also everyone in that space is into podcasts, for example, video. So all kinds of video, audio, social media, it's incredibly important for a lot of outlets. And I also think that there's a tremendous sphere of, of influencers. They're not even like uh not even media brands themselves, right? But they have a huge following, and that's something that brands could tap into. I think, you know, frankly, more they don't typically do it. I'd actually like to build upon um, some of the points you brought up. Um, I think for media relations, I think this is a very exciting time to be in because uh, we're no longer beholden in some ways to traditional types of media, you know, right? So uh, I think a lot of the trappings that uh, a lot of um, you know people sort of fall into is that uh, we need to be in the New York Times, we need to be in Forbes, we need to be in the Wall Street Journal. I want to sort of encourage and challenge everyone to kind of step away from that viewpoint because that's a rather short-sighted view on what the actual media landscape is right now. Uh, for example, you know, Chris um, holds a podcast. That's a wonderful medium that I think is starting to break out a bit. I mean, how many people in here uh, listen to a podcast in some shape or form while they commute to work? Almost everyone in here, and, and the reason why it's simple, it's you know very passive and it's easy to listen to, and it also it allows you know people like Chris and his you know his audience and his interviewers or interviewees rather to really talk in depth about their own stories, right? You get to hear the full fledged conversations, which is kind of refreshing, especially when we're living in a day and age where we're constantly bombarded by sound bites and you know one liners. You know, you turn on the TV, you hear a sound bite here, or marketing speak there, or party says this, the other party says that. I think. We're, and this is from no research of my own. This is just my own observation. I just think that the people are starting to get a little bit tired of that. Uh, they want something a little bit more long form, something that has a little bit more meat and more substance to the conversation rather than just throwing one-liners to each other. So um, podcasting is a great uh, medium for that. Um, other things is, you know, try to get people out on the speaking circuit, speaking directly to your customers and to the audience. You know, there's TEDx, TEDMED, Aspen Ideas Festivals, local science events. Uh, if you're in the San Francisco area, there's Nerd and Beer Night. You know, I mean, what, who would have thought? I mean, that's a perfect, way, wonderful way for people like yourselves to go out there and direct, interact directly with and break bread and beer uh, with uh, your potential future customers. So those are just some outside sort of thinking to, um, to consider when you're considering the media landscape you know, right something now. Something I would add is that so last year, Pew uh, Research Institute put out a study of science news, right? Where do people get their science news the usual suspects are obviously there, right? People do read, you know, traditional media. Uh, but if you looked at where they trust, right, where the trust was, traditional media, the lowest. The highest, I bet you cannot guess what it might have been. Science museums. That's where people, and, and second to that was uh, their friends on social media. So they're looking for information um, about science. I, you know, look, scientists are friends with scientists. So, you know, that's, that's a little, there are other ways of interpreting that. But I, I think that um, all of us who are scientists, 
we have our, our, our universe of scientists. This is a perfect, we're at the American Chemical Society meeting right now. It's a perfect example, right? And they all have their networks and people do trust that. We, as journalists at CNN, we know that and, and we're looking to use it, right? Like we, we want people to share it. That's sort of the ultimate test of, of how much our stuff is resonating with someone. I think brands could think about that more. I love that uh, museum example. I mean, that, yep. I like to go to museums just to see how things are displayed and think about like mm. how a marketer would do the same thing or, yeah, it's or take very, some very ideas. creative. It's a very different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So experiential, right? Yeah, exactly. So, John, um, how much does mobile influence your thinking about what, what you're trying to do for clients? Uh, I mean, I think it, it changes a lot of things because, um, uh, like, you know, I think. We live in such a mobile, you know, society right now. It's like right now, you have, how many people are in the habit of just doing this? They're scrolling through the phones, going through all the different feeds, trying to take in as much as they can and disregard things that they don't like. Uh, so we're all guilty of that. And um, here's a newsflash, you know, journalists are humans too, and they do the exact same thing, right? Except in Amanda's case, I'm sure she's just deleting the hundreds and hundreds of pitches <laughs> and press releases I'm sure that she receives on a daily basis, right? So that's something to consider, at least for someone like uh, me, when I want to pitch a, you know, a story to, uh, some, to Amanda through an email. I mean, what am I going to put in my subject line that doesn't sound uh, markety and gimmicky, but while at the same time is shortened to the point? That's sort of a challenge that I, um, I think mobile has really um, had a big influence on that. I absolutely think that's true. I do get hundreds of, <laughs> of emails from PR people, and, and, and they vary, right? Like some of them are great. Some of them are putting on, I would say, the always solving hat. What, what problem can they solve for me? And those are the most, I would argue, most effective marketers when they cut, well, you know, at least if, if you're judging effectiveness as I open your email, I look at it, I say, oh, this is a great idea. And I call my reporter and I say, you should look, you know, call this person, right? Um, if, I'm assuming that that's probably a fact that they're trying, yeah. to, <laughs> trying to elicit. So I think, you know, uh, thinking definitely about how your pitch comes through on mobile is, is, is definitely key. I also think, like, if one of the things you're thinking about is, trying to create content or pitch content is thinking about how that will work on, on mobile. So just like any other journalist, I think right now scientists are a little slower to adopt than like the general public. So we're maybe 40% mobile right now, but someplace like the New York Times, the last number I saw was like 75% versus desktop. So, so you have to realize that most of the people consuming the information where you're trying to place it are going to be on, on a mobile device. And so that really does change, I think, the way you tell a story, the way you present content, the format. Mm -hmm. Audio becomes more important. Video becomes mm -hmm. more important. Screen size, how things adjust becomes more important. So. Yeah, so you answered one of my next questions, but let's go to when you get those 150 pitches a day, what makes a good story? If I'm going to come to you, what are the elements I need to have in place for you to go, yes, I want to have my reporter go talk yeah. to this person? I don't think there's one solution, but I'll tell you like the kinds of things that stand out. So I think pitches that pitch me a, a trend, something larger than just the company's product or service mm. are really compelling, but position the company as a thought leader in that space, uh, a source to tap. It feels important. It feels more pressing. It can give more, uh, drive more immediacy. So I think that that's a, that's a thing that works. So if you, if you're a, a company, I'm just make this up. I don't know if any of you are in this space, but for example, I got a pitch a few days ago, which I actually passed on, you know, with a with a sort of a push to a reporter about a um, 
a reaction prediction software. So that's probably too specialized for this room. Okay, so, so using big data to solve a problem as to whether, what reaction they should try to make a chemical, okay? And, you know, they, they obviously are in this space, but instead of saying to me, we launched this program, they, uh, the, the conversation started with the larger trend, data to support that larger trend, and then talked about, you know, what they had to offer. And it's very compelling. That's sort of the start of a real story as opposed to just a cold call. Um, so that, that's one example, putting it in context in a larger trend. John and I talked about this earlier. I definitely think this is the case where if you're putting it in sort of a human element, um, we're always looking for characters, interesting people to interview who have compelling things to say. If you tease a little bit of that character, you know, t- to me or, or to a journalist, that tells me, oh, I'm not going to get like some dry interview with somebody. I know this, this person's actually going to be really interesting. I want to tell my readers about that they can be a channel for something else. So that, that's another example. And then just, I would say, uh, third and maybe last targeted. I get a lot of things that like, you know, makes it clear that the person doesn't know what I do, right? I mean, I will take it out of this group of people, right? But like, I'll get things about from education PR. Like, mm-hmm. Would you like to publish? I'm like, no, I would not delete. <laughs> so I think just making it clear that you understand what we do. I mean, I think you can take this another level, like to specific journalists. Your company works with a couple of my journalists in the pharma space, for example. They know exactly what they're working on. They know exactly how to pitch it. They know what stories they've recently run. You see, a, you know, the best relationship is a long-term one. Um, and I think, you know, when those people, you know, my, my best reporters, they have long-term relationships with PR people who have given them great information, an early look, an exclusive look, for example, and that sort of breeds trust as it goes on. And I think it has, it pays dividends on both sides. Agreed. And I, I agree with a lot of the, um, everything that she said, but I'm glad she brought up the whole idea of, you know, bringing characters into your story, right? And because, you know, to me, an interesting science story, and I want to put emphasis on the word story here, uh, you know, interweaves, you know, the coolness of science with, you know, the human experience, right? If I want to learn about science, you know, I'd either pick up textbook or I would pick up a peer-reviewed journal like Nature Go to Wikipedia. Or, right? or good old Wikipedia. <laughs> that. You put it in Google. <laughs> you go straight to Wikipedia. But um, so I, what I mean by that is like, so when I want to read a good science story, I want to have a story that I can relate to. Right? There are characters in the story. There are sort of the emotions and experiences that that particular character kind of goes through that you want to kind of follow, right? So if I want to hear uh, about a scientist doing some groundbreaking work in X area, I want to know what drove that person to that area in the first place. You know, what, what are the questions he's asking and why is he asking them? What are the problems he's trying to solve? And I think that if you kind of tailor your pitch or you know, your story towards that lens, I think it not only humanizes uh, the story a little bit, but it makes it a little more interesting because that's just, again, that's just something that all of us can latch on to. So it's just something to consider. I also think like when you talk about characters, I think sometimes brands are like uncomfortable mm-hmm. talking about challenges that they overcome. I actually think that that uh, introduces tension of, uh, oftentimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some drama. If you think about like the best novels or the best magazine stories that you've read have nothing to do with science. They all have that mm-hmm. tension, that challenge, that, you know, that conflict there. And so, you know, I don't want to make too much of it, but I think sometimes uh, showing 
a conflict, a challenge, and then the solution and how the person overcame it, right, through persistence or creativity or, you know, all the things that we respect about, about scientists and that we want to see in our own selves that can really, I think, bring it alive. Nice. This came up a little bit. I think Laura Brown asked a question this morning. I saw you, Laura. Um, accuracy in these stories. So I'm imagining, and tell me if I'm wrong, that you know a story gets started by someone in your company, and then it, it might go to you, or it gets reviewed, and a bunch of other people put their input into it. Mm-hmm. How do you ensure that by the time it gets to you, it has the accuracy that maybe started with the first person, but then a little hearsay here and there drops in, and now there might be a critical detail that's you know, maybe a, an outsider would look at it and go, that's not important. But to a scientist, maybe it is. And if it's not right, it's a big deal. Yeah, I would say, you know, of course, to our audience, since they're all scientists, you know, accuracy is, I mean, I think to any journalist, accuracy is paramount. Mm-hmm. It's part of the, the, you know, again, the trust that you have with readers. It's the, re- it's the reason people come to you as opposed to anywhere else. You just go ask their neighbor, right? But sort of internally with scientists, I mean, for us, it's incredibly important. I think it's, it's uh, you know, number one for CNN in particular. Um, how we handle um, ensuring accuracy, uh, it starts, I don't want to say it ends, but it lives with the reporter. Our expectation is that the reporter, and to some degree the, et- the editor that follows them, obviously, um, is there to sort of push back and, and f- check you know, sort of bounce the check off of. But really, at the end of the day, it's the reporter. And the reporter does many things. They'll fact check with sources. They'll fact check with a third person. They might, um, you know, sort of go to a third party. They usually have every, I I know some of my reporters, they go through their story and everything, single sentence is, uh, is annotated with, you know, where they got that information from. You know, it's not that Nobody ever makes errors if you're working in a daily schedule like we do. You know, they do happen. But I think when they happen, you just have to be uh, very clear and um, uh, very transparent about it happening. So, Yeah, from a PR agency's perspective, you know, it's also our job to make sure the science is accurate in these stories, too. So you want to make sure you're working with someone that truly understands the field that you guys are in and, you know, be able to work with, you know, someone like a man to make sure that the science there is right. So, yeah, this is something to think about when you want to work with. Um, but I think we, the other thing that, that we often have to talk to people about is that accuracy means, you know, a certain thing to us and to our readers. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there can be a, a disconnect potentially, I mean, in, in terms of like what our mission is, right? Our mission, the journalist's mission is not necessarily to repeat what the press person told us, but to make sure that our audience understands it, has context. So sometimes our job is to make sure that we're hitting both of those things, right? Making sure it's accurate, but also making sure that it's engaging, informative, that it's not, you know, that, that our readers will appreciate it as well. Let's go to finding stories in your own company. So how, because people might have an idea of what they think is a story, but I imagine that lots of companies have stories that people, that would be interesting but they're just, their radar isn't up for those things. How do you go around your company and find those hidden gems? <laughs> I think it just ultimately comes down to just starting having a simple conversation, right? I think uh, so often we get so caught up in our day-to-day, you know, your emails need to be sent, projects need to be finished, that we sometimes we just forget to talk to each other about what's going on in your day-to-day. Why are you doing the things that you do? 
And granted, not everyone's going to have that killer story. Let's face it, some people are there for work, uh, you know, for um, other responsibilities. But every once in a while, you'll find that one nugget, that rare gem um, story just by talking. Uh, for example, if you were uh, working at an oncology company, uh, perhaps you might come across someone that, that's working at that company because they have a personal vendetta against cancer. Maybe you know he or she has suffered through it in the past, or they have a family or loved one that suffered through it, and you know that puts a human element to their story, right? And that's something that can be very interesting and could set the foundation for a marketing or a you know media relations type uh, campaign. So that's one thing: just have a simple conversation. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that sounds like a good answer to me. <laughs> Um, Usually, how reporters get their stories. <laughs> yeah, so. Okay, well, that's great. Um, so, for this question, for the both of you, I'd like your perspectives on how agencies or companies and editorial organizations can best work together to get stories. Yeah, sure. Um, well, uh, I was debating on whether or not I wanted to kind of go into sort of the details of how I or HDMZ particularly likes to pitch a story. Uh, I don't think there's one right way to pitch, um, but there are some basic philosophies that I like to personally follow. And um, there's, th there's three things I'd like to share today. The first one might not be a popular idea given the audience uh, in, this, in this room, but the first thing um, to pitch an effective story is one, you have to leave your brand and your arrogance at the door. And now what I mean by this, and again, this is not going to be very popular, but I'm sure everyone in here thinks that uh, their company is the best thing since sliced bread, or they have, they have the best product, they have the best science, they have the best team. Okay, so be it. Maybe that's true, maybe it isn't. But uh, I'm not going to speak for Amanda here, but um, with most of the journalists that I work with, they could, quite honestly, uh, to put it politely, um, could care less about what you think about your company, uh, about your product. What they want is a good story that satisfies not just their editors, but also their audience, right? Uh, that's who, that's who they need to serve. So that's one thing that you need to consider right off, right off the bat. Second, um, which Amanda kind of touched upon earlier, is you know, know who you're pitching to. I think a lot of the times we sort of make the mistake, or a lot of PR agencies make the mistake, of you know, they think that just sending a mass mailing, a press release to everyone, say 100, 200 names on a media list, is going to be enough to, uh, for a media relations type tactic. I, I just don't think that cuts it, that cuts it this day and age. Whenever I have done that in the past, I felt dirty. I felt it felt it was impersonal. It just didn't it just didn't sit well with me. So uh, I like to do a much more surgical um, knife kind of approach when I target journalists. So for example, someone like Amanda, uh, I know that she was studied at John Hopkins at MIT. You know, does a lot of coverage on chemical research. So I'm not going to pitch her a story uh, about how digital health is changing the CRO industry. That just doesn't make sense. So know who you're pitching right off the bat. And the last thing is, you have to treat. Um, all journalists, no matter where they're from, um, from all media outlets, with equal love and respect. And what I mean by that is, uh, uh, you know, whether you're working with uh, someone from the from some small city newspaper to, say, chief editor at Forbes or the Wall Street Journal, you got to treat them all with respect because they all have a role to play in telling your guys' story. Uh, with today's media landscape, yes. that person could blow up on Reddit tomorrow exactly. and have a tremendous reach that you're not anticipating. And, and not to mention, like a lot of the journalists, I'm sure you guys, they they talk to each yes. other, right? I mean, they they're do. following each other on Twitter. They're commenting on each other's posts. I mean, they go to uh, science writers' conferences together and they connect there. So like, you can't burn. I would just be careful about burning those smaller fish uh, because I think that could... Um, cost you a lot in the end. 
Yeah. Yeah, to that I would just add that I think it's not just about like journalists at different places, but I think that there are a number, especially in the sciences, there are a number of bloggers, mm -hmm. people on social that have big followings, but they may not have like a brand name behind them mm -hmm. that, you know, you might recognize or your know, superior might recognize. But actually, I think you have to do a little homework there. Every call that you get, um, some of those people can be really um, valuable and influential for you. So, so that's something to consider. The other thing I would add is that I think that most journalists do not look at PR as being sort of like the enemy. In fact, many of them are our former colleagues, right? There are lots of journalists who have gone to PR, right? And so a lot of times you're talking to an old friend. Mm -hmm. But I think the, the most important thing is to sort of make sure that that's a relationship that you feed and nurture. Because I think I mentioned earlier that sometimes it's not about the pitch that you're making right now. Maybe it's the time that they need a source for a story and they think, oh, right. I remember John talked to me about this company in this space previously, and it, it didn't work for me then, but, but now I'm writing about this now, right? Now I'm writing this big CRISPR story. I should call him back because I haven't, you know, that company doesn't sound like it's public right yet. And you know what I mean? It, it, it can get you something down the road, there's definitely a long game to be played. Nice. So do we have some time for some audience questions? So I know I'm loving the interview. When I get done with the podcast, I often tell people, like, my cheeks hurt because I'm just loving the information that's coming <laughs> in. So my cheeks are a little tired, so I'm going to let you guys ask some questions. Hey. Uh, I have actually a question uh, for both of you, but just curious about, um, obviously, there's a big trend of brands producing their own content, you know, custom publishing, content marketing, everything like that. Uh, and there's a little bit of a hesitation sometimes on the brand side to scoop themselves when they could be covered by a media entity. So I guess my question is, if a brand is producing content that's designed to be editorial in nature, does that actually hurt their chances of being part of the editorial story? Is that a real concern or is it just kind of like, that's not how you operate? Just In the curious. same publication? If they do it on their own, say... Uh, They're producing content on their own. Yes. On the side. I, I, I don't think so. I think what a journalist is looking for is something that their audience hasn't seen. So I think yeah. it, it, might, it might depend on, you know, just how much airplay that content that they've made has created, but I also think that there's always a different angle that mm -hmm. could be taken. So to me, it would just be part of a conversation, right? You know, what could what could we do that would be different? That, I, mean, I guess that's what I'm saying. That's how I would want the brand to come to me, right? To think about how could they add, how could there be a different angle that they take on what they've produced so far, right? Maybe they're making a podcast here and they want to offer up the host or something like that or one of the guests for a Q&A in, in, a, in an organization. I'm kind of trying to put my hat on the other way. What, I, what would I do, right? <laughs> That's what I would do. I would try to, you know, sort of place that kind of idea with them and in the hopes that you'd get links to whatever you've made for your brand, because that's like SEO gold, right? And I think a lot of the, the issue is not, can I make great content, right? I mean, you know, you're, hopefully you know your audience, right? You're really close to your customers. Hopefully you can make great content, right? But if nobody sees it, who cares, <laughs> right? So I think that, that uh, uh, earned media can play a role in helping you get more discoverable. Yeah, and, and developing content is uh, really important just to you know, build upon uh, her point because, you know, a lot of the times, you know, especially if you're a company that's not as well known uh, or a lot smaller, you know, a lot of times the journalist's first introduction to that particular company is through your guys' website, yeah. right? And if you have, if you don't have any good content that doesn't, you know, 
uh, kind of talk about what you guys do and you know um, things like that. Then they're not going to have any background on you. They're not going to be able to cover you as effectively. So I think have, developing that content ready, having that rest on your webpage for journalists to come in and just to see what you guys are all about, that's going to be really critical too. Yeah. I think sometimes like a, a brand will also sometimes create data or graphics or something like that. And especially at digital outlets where they probably don't have big creative budgets, that can actually be very appealing, right? Mm -hmm. Even if they don't necessarily like pick up the creative exactly, the idea that that's there, it's sort of a passive way without like the push of the PR. So I I think there's lots of opportunity, to be honest. I I don't think those two things are in competition. Thank you. We have a question here. Yes. um, So you mentioned about the pitch that... uh, you know, a company or somebody should basically contact you and tell you, or have a pitch that addresses your needs and has something of interest to the customers. So my question is, have you noticed a change in the customer and what the customer is looking for in the last, I don't know, five to 10 years, especially with the advent of social media? We're always hearing that attention spans are shorter. We're seeing more and more shock value when you, mm-hmm. you know, read certain publications or Put on the news. So, it, have you seen a change in what your customers are looking for, or is the scientific community still very much we, driven by data? Um, I, I think uh, scientists see right through like shock value and like you know what I mean. Some of that, like if I were TMZ, <sighs> I'd get fired probably. Right? I, I don't think anyone would read us. I, I, you know, scientists are looking for thoughtful, reasoned data-driven information. Now, that does not mean that it shouldn't be engaging, right? So don't read that as like, just publish a journal paper. I actually think there's tons of that stuff out there, and it's the bar for engagement is just as high. I think we all expect a great user experience. We all expect seamless. We want to we be intrigued. We want it to be enjoyable. But a scientist is still wanting it to be meat there. Yes. Um, so I, that's the distinction I would make. So there's definitely a expectation of, of it being fun and enjoyable to read on your phone. Coming back to, to Chris's earlier question, but I also think, you know, not the quick, you know, people are willing to spend time with a, with a long story or something involved if it's, if it's uh, showing them something they don't know or helping them with something that they can bring back to their bench. Yeah, and I think that also affects the way that you know I would pitch uh, the media, uh, right? Uh, because I think we're also living in a day and age where uh, everyone's, uh, for a lack of a better word, everyone's BS meter is just so heightened and through the roof that you know you got to be able to cut through all that, right? So when I'm writing a pitch to say someone like Amanda, I, you know, I'm very matter of fact, data driven, to the point, uh, and and address her and her editors, or not, you're the um, <laughs> editor, so, uh, <laughs> right. but addresses her and her audience's needs, right? So. That affects the way we pitch, and it, it takes it's it's hard to uh, write that initial pitch because uh, how can you tell that entire story in a nice, concise way that isn't bogged down by you know um, uh, messaging points and marketing speak and things like that? So um, definitely changes how PR specialists work as well. Well, I guess just one kind of uh, general question. I think that, and you buy, you probably have two different valuable perspectives on this issue. So from the agency side, I feel like. You kind of know what's best going into a pitch. Hey, if we get a link back to this piece of content on our site, that's awesome. 
We get social shares and syndication. Yeah. That's awesome too. And then from the editorial side, you probably know what people are kind of after. Is there mm-hmm. anything you could speak to to kind of talk about navigating the candor with which you approach the ask? Is it better if people are kind of upfront about what they're mm. really after, or can you just kind of see right through that? And then it's disingenuous mm. and kind of a turnoff. I think it depends on the publication. Yeah. So, you know, we wouldn't take like syndication of something from a, um, from a brand, right? My editorial team would not take something that a, an article that say a brand sent me and publish it. Right. So I think knowing, but, but there are places that will. So I think knowing your, that's a part of just, you know, the research of figuring out who you're talking to, right. And what their needs are. But I don't, I, I don't know that beyond that, you know, I, I appreciate honesty, I, I guess. <laughs> right. But again, Always I don't think honest. it's more, it, again, it's, the journalist is thinking of it's less about like what you, the brand, want. They're thinking about it's what my readers want. Do they want this information? Is the information that this brand is offering me, is that something they'd be interested in? That's the, that's the real yeah. decision-making point for us. Yeah. I'd, I'd have to agree. Yeah. In media relations, it's obviously about maintaining uh, at a high level. Uh, from the agency side with the... Uh, with our editors and, and journalists that we're interested in working with. And so, you know, on our side, it's letters of introduction on the part of our clients or uh, sending the occasional link or, or uh, of interest, you know, without actually pitching or soliciting or something like that. And that sort of maintenance of that relationship, I'm curious, Amanda, what it's like on your end. What are the expectations that you have for you know, a, a maintenance of a relationship? And what's sort of the threshold where it starts becoming annoying? Yeah, I think it depends on how valuable the information is, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, you could, you could hit me all the time if you're hitting me all the time with things that are valuable, right? So I don't think that there's like some set answer in terms of frequency or something like that. But I, you know, I think my comments previously show that, you know, I think there is value in maintaining the relationship. I know that certainly like just go back to like the biotech pharma space, my lead reporter there I know has consistent relations, regular coffees with certain PR people who really help her get what she needs, who feed her news of this company launching early, things like that, that building those relationships means that you get um, great information. So I think, uh, I think it depends on the specific example. So I'm a little hard to, to answer just generally, but I definitely think maintenance, maintenance matters, and it's not always just about emailing. And again, this kind of goes back to the whole idea of knowing who you're pitching, right? Like if I have a good relationship with Amanda, I'm not going to send her every single pitch and press release her way. You know, I got to make sure that it's, it's, it's right for her and what she's looking for at that time. So that's just something to take into consideration. I think the best PR people are watching what we're pushing yes. out, right? And they're looking, oh, you're, you're covering, you know, companies in this space, yeah. right? And then they'll come to me with the next one, you know, that's about to go out of stealth. And I'm like, yes, yes, I want to hear that. In other words, <laughs> right. uh, PR professionals, uh, we're, we're great stalkers and gossipers. Definitely, yeah, yeah. Well, so, so are reporters, so, yeah. <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah. yeah thank thank you. you. I want to thank Amanda and John, of course, for their valuable insights. I also want to thank Stephanie Holland, Sandra Haddon, and the whole team at CNEN for inviting me and putting on a lovely event. If you enjoy this podcast, you know what to do. This stuff is too good to keep to yourself. 
please share it with a couple friends, won't you? Then leave a rating and a review on iTunes. They are much appreciated. Until next time, bye-bye. Thank you.